0: Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? (laughs) Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA.
1: He says,
2: somebody's in the house, and I screamed... (laughs)
0: Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities.
3: Welcome to Criminalia, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio.
1: He was arrested in 1859 for his role in the Harper's Ferry Raid, an event that set the stage for the American Civil War. He was subsequently convicted of treason against the Commonwealth of Virginia, as well as for murder and for instigating insurrection. We're talking about American abolitionist John Brown, the first person executed for treason in the United States. Welcome to Criminalia. I'm Maria Tremurki,
3: and I'm Holly Fry. Internationally renowned activist and abolitionist leader and former enslaved man Frederick Douglass once said about John Brown quote Though a white gentleman, Brown is in sympathy a black man, and as deeply interested in our cause." as though his own soul had been pierced with the iron of slavery. John was born into a deeply religious family in Torrington, Connecticut in 1800. His parents, it said, were loving but strict and he was raised with Calvinist Christian beliefs. And that included the idea that righteous punishment was an instrument of the divine. The Browns believed enslavement was a sin against God and John believed that he had been predestined to end it.
1: Live your beliefs and you can turn the world around, wrote American naturalist and poet Henry David Thoreau, who was a contemporary of John's. Brown embodied that quote. He grew up with a father who was vehemently opposed to enslavement. When John was five years old, his family moved to northern Ohio, specifically to live in a district that was known for its anti-slavery views. And as he was coming of age, both he and his father, named Owen, served as what were known as conductors. On the Underground Railroad. The Browns were living their beliefs.
3: As an adult, John married twice. His first wife died from illness. He had a large family. Altogether, he fathered 20 children. Some of those children died in infancy. A few died in the struggles against enslavement, some fighting right alongside their father. The Browns spent their lives moving around the country, settling in Ohio then Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, the list goes on. John went from place to place and from job to job, working at times as a farmer, a wool merchant, a tanner, and land speculator. But he never really found the right fit, and he was never financially successful. In fact, he filed for bankruptcy when he was in his early 40s. But in accordance with his upbringing, that did not matter. Money did not stop him from supporting causes that he believed in.
1: Despite his own financial hardships, he backed the anti-slavery movement any way he could. He supported the establishment of the League of Gileadites, which was an organization meant to help escaped enslaved persons avoid those who sought to catch them. He helped finance the publication of David Walker's document called, as a long title bear with me, Appeal In four articles, together with a preamble to the colored citizens of the world, but in particular, and very expressly, to those of the United States of America. This is important because it's arguably, among historians, the most radical of all anti-slavery documents published in the United States. Walker was an American abolitionist and anti-slavery activist, and his pamphlet, written in 1829, put a spotlight on the abuses and injustice of enslavement and it also pointed a finger at the ethical bankruptcy of Americans who were not behind the cause. He called for black pride and called for immediate and universal emancipation of enslaved persons in the United States. His writing was incendiary, and it defended violent rebellion as a means for enslaved persons to claim their freedom. Walker, a free black man originally from the South, wrote, quote, They want us for their slaves and think nothing of murdering us. Therefore, if there's an attempt made by us, kill or be killed. And believe this, that it is no more harm for you to kill a man who is trying to kill you than it is for you to take a drink of water when thirsty. Many white Americans, regardless of whether or not they were opposed to or in support of enslavement, were taken aback by the writing, and many feared rebellion. John thought it was fantastic.
3: After roughly two decades, though, Walker's appeal had kind of gotten lost in the shuffle of so much other abolitionist writing that was being published at the time. In 1848, new life was breathed into it when a Black minister named Henry Highland Garnett reprinted it. Garnett wrote a document of his own, too, a similarly themed speech entitled Address to the Slaves of the United States of America, in which he encouraged enslaved people to turn against those who enslaved them. Like Walker's writing, Garnett's ideas were considered so radical that his work was rejected for publication in 1843. Actually, it was rejected twice. It was influential white abolitionist John Brown who backed Garnett and the dissemination of this important work. And in it, Garnett called for those persons enslaved in the South to refuse to work, to demand freedom from their enslavers, and to resist their oppressors with force as necessary. He asserted anyone enslaved should act for themselves to achieve total emancipation.
1: And John agreed. Walker and Garnett were influential for Brown and were men who stood for exactly what John advocated for. Brown also called for unity between the Black and white American communities, stating, quote, "...stand by one another and by your friends while the drop of blood remains, and be hanged if you must, but tell no tales out of school, make no confession." Union is strength.
3: Harvard historian John Stauffer, author of The Black Hearts of Men, Radical Abolitionists, and the Transformation of Race, has said of John Brown, quote, Blacks were among his closest friends, and in some respects he felt more comfortable around Blacks than he did around whites. An echo of what we heard Frederick Douglass say of Brown. In 1849, Brown and his family moved to the free Black farming community of North Elba, New York which is located in Lake Placid. That community had been established through the help of former United States representative and abolitionist Garrett Smith, who donated at least 50 acres to Black families who were willing to clear it and farm there. Knowing that it might have been hard to establish that community, Brown had offered to farm there as well in order to lead by example.
1: We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And when we're back, we will talk about John's time fighting pro-slavery activity in what was known as Bleeding Kansas.
0: Can I rant for a sec? Please.
3: hey, everybody, it's Holly. Listen, I've been doing stuff on stage since I was a kid, which means that I have been doing my makeup since I was a kid. And I can turn out a look when I need to. But on my day to day, I really like to keep it a little more relaxed and low key. I don't have time for a full face most of the time. But that also means that Thrive Cosmetics can have me covered no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm doing something on stage, like I have an appearance or a live show or I'm just running to the grocery store. Something in their line is perfect. And what I really love and what's important to me is that they are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. And to me, cruelty-free is very important in the cosmetics I use. I mentioned that I've been doing my makeup for a long time. I've gotten older at <laughs> that time. And one of the things that I've done to refresh my look is switch over to their brilliant eye brighteners and use something like a rose gold shade to really like go all around my eye and then just blend it out and get a daytime smoky look. It makes me look a little more youthful and more refreshed. And it's just easy as pie, and it means that I don't have to mess with a whole ton of products. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at ThriveCosmetics.com slash Criminilia. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com. Slash Criminalia for 10% off your first order. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Listen, you listen to true crime podcasts. You know that the world can be dangerous and unpredictable and that there will unfortunately be people who want to hurt each other. And so it's kind of nice to get a little peace of mind by having a good home security system. Just take a few precautions. And I recommend looking at Simply Safe Home Security. I've had my home broken into in the past and it was a terrible feeling, even though nothing that bad really happened. Aside from an intruder, I just really like knowing that I have a security setup that lets me check in on my pets when I'm not home. That is a huge peace of mind giver when I am out traveling. Simply Safe sent me a whole home security system, and I was really, really impressed by the variety of indoor and outdoor cameras they offer. And the whole thing is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash criminalia. That's simplysafe, S I M P L I S A F E, dot com slash criminalia. There's no safe like Simply Safe.
0: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I
2: thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this
0: board.
3: Welcome back to Criminalia. Let's talk about how John saw himself as the, quote, deliverer of the slaves the same as Moses had delivered the children of Israel.
1: A few years after his move to North Elba, John's anti-slavery work took him to Kansas, though his family remained in New York. In 1855, Brown and five of his sons traveled to what was then the Kansas Territory. Some records do suggest that Brown's older sons had moved to Kansas previously and that he joined them to help defend anti-slavery homesteaders, but one way or the other, these six men are in Kansas. The Kansas Territory has a deep and complex part of the history of enslavement in the United States, but we're going to try to stay real high level here with John. Basically. As soon as it was formed in 1854, the Kansas Territory had been a battleground over the future of enslavement in the United States. And while there, Brown led a group of anti-slavery fighters against a pro-slavery attack in which homes and businesses had been looted, stores were set on fire, printing presses were destroyed, and this was all in the anti-slavery town of Lawrence. On May 24th, 1856, his small group of men, killed five unarmed men who were believed to be pro-slavery advocates. And this was in retaliation for the attack on Lawrence and the repeated violence in the area.
3: The pro- and anti-slavery fight in the region became more heated when, in 1856, President Franklin Pierce recognized pro-slavery legislature as the only legitimate government of Kansas. In response, Brown and his sons continued to fight in the Kansas Territory as well as into Missouri, throughout the rest of the year. Things here were so bad that the Kansas Territory was nicknamed Bleeding Kansas because of the ongoing violence between pro-slavery and anti-slavery groups, violence that was often attributed to the retaliatory uprisings led by Brown. In total, it's estimated 55 people were killed between 1855 and 1859. Violence began to wane once a newly appointed territorial governor, a man named John Geary, ordered all armed settlers in the territory to disperse.
1: It was during this time in Kansas when Brown began developing his bigger plan, a plan to free all enslaved persons. He traveled to Boston in 1857 and again in 1858 seeking backing. And that backing, he was looking for money and he was looking for weapons. And his pitch was that he had had a vision that God would make him, quote, the deliverer of the slaves, the same as Moses had delivered the children of Israel. Though many Northerners supported him, they also feared the violence he incited, so backing his play was a bit of a risky proposition to them. At a meeting of the New England Anti-Slavery Society, John denounced the seemingly endless discussions among abolitionists, saying, quote, Talk, talk, talk. That will never free the slaves. What is needed is action. Action! He did get supplies, convincing those who might sponsor his plans that, quote, only by force could this slave-cursed republic be restored to the principles of the Declaration of Independence.
3: Brown returned back east, specifically the Virginia area. He was now, at the age of 59, described as thin, having, quote, a shock of gray hair and... Penetrating gray eyes. Philosopher and transcendentalist Bronson Alcott once called him, quote, the manliest man I ever met. That manliest man was about to do something really consequential. On October 16, 1859, John led 21 men, 16 white men and five black men, on a raid of the federal arsenal at Harpers Ferry, Virginia. Today that is West Virginia. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Tony Horowitz has said of John, quote, he felt that it was both necessary and a moral imperative that Blacks fight alongside whites for their freedom. Harper's Ferry was chosen for a few reasons, but one important reason was that arsenal. Brown intended to arm enslaved people in the region with the weapons inside. Here's what we know about the men who went to Harper's Ferry to wage war on enslavement with John. They included John's youngest sons, Watson and Oliver, an enslaved person who had escaped from Charleston, South Carolina, a former enslaved man from Virginia, a black student attending Oberlin College, a pair of Quaker brothers from Iowa who had abandoned their belief that conflict was against God's will to support and follow Brown in this cause, as well as men who had come from Connecticut, New York, Pennsylvania, Indiana, and other surrounding states. Brown hoped that their raid would spark an uprising of armed enslaved persons revolting against their oppressors and that it would in turn spark additional revolts throughout the pro-slavery states.
1: This was John's moment. Here's how it went. On July 3, 1859, under the alias Isaac Smith, Brown rented the Kennedy Farmhouse four miles north of Harper's Ferry. Kennedy Farm is now a National Historic Landmark property in southern Maryland. For anyone who's curious. (laughs) For five months, they studied maps and finalized plans. And during that time, Brown's teenage daughter and one of his daughters in law temporarily located to help with domestic work as well as help as lookouts. On the night of October 16th, the group attacked the armory. But things went wrong. Word had spread of a massive uprising of enslaved people in the area. But it wasn't true. Word had not really spread to enslaved people in the area about Brown's plan to arm them so they could rise up against oppression. They just didn't know. John's group was stopped by local farmers and militiamen, but the plan was over when United States Marines, led by Colonel Robert E. Lee, arrived. Americans probably best know him as General Robert E. Lee, but he didn't rise to that rank until the American Civil War in 1861, when he became general in the Confederate Army serving the Confederate States of America. Lee demanded their surrender. Brown refused, and he was wounded when one of the Marines charged him with a saber and then used the hilt to beat him unconscious. Within 36 hours from the start of this attack, most of Brown's men had been captured or killed. Three citizens of Harper's Ferry were killed. We don't actually know if they were pro or anti-slavery or even what their role here was, if any. One Marine was killed. Ten of John's men, including two of his sons, were killed. Two of the enslaved persons they had liberated to take up arms and fight with them had also been killed.
3: Brown, injured but alive, was captured, arrested, and moved to Charlestown. That's about 13 miles away from Harper's Ferry. When the governor of Virginia, members of Congress, and journalists all asked him why he'd done it, John replied simply, quote, We came to free the slaves, and only that. In regard to a military battle or raid, we read in research that the event didn't even really reach the level of what you would call a skirmish. But that was not what mattered. The very fact that it took place at all jolted both Northerners and Southerners. It created the figure of John Brown, a man who continues to be a significant figure in the history of the United States, Still today, among Americans, uh, he is celebrated or he's vilified. There's not a lot of gray area when it comes to people's opinions of him.
1: Next, John was taken to the county courthouse and assigned two state-appointed Virginia defense attorneys. We'll get to them and John's defense in just a minute. The next day, the court read the grand jury indictment. John Brown was charged with three things. One, treason against the government of Virginia. Two, conspiracy to induce slaves to, quote, rebel and make insurrection against their masters and owners. And three, first-degree murder. He pleaded not guilty. Four other of Brown's captured raiders were indicted that day as well, on treason charges, and each was given a separate trial. John's jury was made up of 12 men, some, but not all of whom were pro-slavery.
3: John's trial began with one of his court-appointed defense attorneys reading aloud a telegram from an Ohio resident who claimed that several of Brown's relatives suffered from various types of mental illness. And John protested. He did not want a trial held under the guise of his alleged mental instability. He insisted that using an insanity defense was a, quote, miserable artifice and pretext to avoid discussing What he felt was the actual issue at hand, enslavement. The judge, Judge Parker, ignored him and ordered the trial to continue.
1: Feeling that the defense team was not up to the task, the men who financed John's raid on Harper's Ferry, a group out of Boston known as the Secret Six, took matters into their own hands. They hired a lawyer named George H. Hoyt to join the defense team, and he was instructed to scout any possible sites where John might be rescued. But John didn't want to be rescued. He wanted his trial to happen because he wanted a forum to discuss the injustice of enslaving people.
3: The prosecution introduced to the court evidence that John had penned an anti-slavery constitution. He had. This was a document he had written in 1858 at an anti-slavery convention in Canada the defense continued to argue that his actions were those of, quote, an unsound mind. Feeling that his court-appointed defense team just could not get it right for him, Brown denounced his Virginia attorneys and requested a delay until more legal help sent from the North arrived in Charlestown. His appointed lawyers withdrew, but the judge ruled against any delay for new representation.
1: Brown didn't have to wait, though. Samuel Chilton and Henry Griswold joined his defense the following morning, but Judge Parker refused the request for the defense to prepare. John did not take the stand at his trial, and during their closing statement, Chilton and Griswold argued the prosecution had failed to prove the charges against their client. John, though, continued to show little interest in his defense because, as we've been saying, he wasn't interested in talking about that. He didn't want to plead insanity. He wanted to talk about enslavement. The jury deliberated for less than an hour and returned with the verdict that John Brown was guilty of all charges against him.
3: We are going to take a break for a word from our sponsor. And when we're back, we will talk about John's execution.
4: Learn more at
1: meaningfulbeauty.com. Welcome back to Criminalia. Before he was sentenced, Judge Parker allowed John to address the court. And this is what he said
3: Two days later, Judge Parker sentenced Brown to be executed by hanging. But before that sentencing, he was allowed to address the court. This was the moment that John wanted. And it's a long speech, so. We're just gonna read an excerpt. Brown asserted that he, quote, never did intend murder or treason or the destruction of property or to excite or incite slaves to rebellion or to make insurrection, but to free slaves. He defended his actions as righteous, stating that, quote, to have interfered as I have done in behalf of God's despised poor was not wrong, but right. Now, if it be deemed necessary, that I should forfeit my life for the furtherance of the ends of justice and mingle my blood further with the blood of my children and with the blood of millions in this slave country whose rights are disregarded by wicked, cruel, and unjust enactments I submit. So let it be done.
1: His full statement was published in newspapers throughout the country. The address convinced many Northerners who had feared his violent tactics that he was not the extremist they feared he was, but rather a, quote, martyr to the case of freedom for everyone. Ralph Waldo Emerson, an American essayist and abolitionist, as well as contemporary of John, said of him, quote, he will make the gallows holy as the cross.
3: Captain John Avis had been Brown's jailer for several weeks in the Charlestown Jail from the time of his capture at Harper's Ferry, through the trial and sentencing. And it's reported that Avis liked John and that he admired his courage, and from what we can tell, the two men became fond of each other. On the morning of December 2nd, 1859, the day of his execution, John gifted Avis with his silver watch as a token of appreciation for the care that he had received while with him. Brown also left a note. These are his final written words, and we quote, I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away but with blood. I had vainly flattered myself that without very much bloodshed it might be done. Avis escorted him to the gallows. John was led to the back of a wagon where he took a seat in what would be his
1: coffin. There are many reports on the scene at the gallows, which means we have some surprisingly good detail of what happened that day. Because Virginia Governor Henry A. Wise feared a last-minute attempt to save Brown from his hanging, admittance to view the execution was severely restricted. Wise had ordered 1,500 soldiers as security who were ordered to arrest any loiterers and anyone who just looked suspicious. No civilians were allowed in.
3: There were a few civilians, though, who witnessed the event, including a reporter named David Strother who at the time was better known by his pen name, Port Crayon. If you speak French, you know that means pencil holder. He was essentially telegraphing that he was always ready to write down what he saw. Strother had covered John's activities since the first shots at Harper's Ferry and reported often on him for Harper's Weekly newspaper. Being a member of the media is not what got him access to witness this execution, though. Strother used a family connection. His uncle was the personal representative of Governor Wise. Probably a good thing, though, as the editors at Harper's Weekly fired him while he was at the execution without telling him so that they wouldn't have to print anything that might offend their readership, such as the coverage of the death of the controversial John Brown. And that's really unfortunate because Strother's description of this execution is one of the most vivid and detailed reports of the event that we saw. Yet it went unpublished for 95 years. It was eventually printed in American Heritage in the 1950s. And of the hanging, Strother said, quote, I stood with a group of half-dozen gentlemen near the steps of the scaffold when the prisoner was driven up. He stepped from the wagon with surprising agility And walked hastily toward the scaffold, pausing a moment as he passed our group to wave his pinioned arm and bid us good morning. I thought I could observe in this a trace of bravado, but perhaps I was mistaken.
1: Thomas J. Jackson, who was later immortalized by the nickname Stonewall Jackson in the first Battle of Bull Run, at the time was a professor at the Virginia Military Institute and stood with the cadets to watch the execution. He described John in his last moments as a man with, quote, unflinching firmness. Edmund Ruffin, a wealthy pro-slavery Virginian and former senator, borrowed a cadet's uniform so he could get close to the stage. Of the execution and the man being executed, Ruffin said, quote, he is as thorough a fanatic as ever suffered martyrdom and a very brave and able man. It is impossible for me not to respect his thorough devotion to his bad cause. Ruffin, by the way, is credited for firing the first shot of the American Civil War at the Battle of Fort Sumter in April 1861. Also in the crowd that day was actor John Wilkes Booth, the very same Booth who assassinated President Abraham Lincoln just a few years later. Booth had joined the Richmond Grays, a volunteer militia, just so he could view this execution saying at its conclusion, quote, I looked at the traitor and terrorizer with unlimited, undeniable contempt.
3: John stood upon the gallows, the hood drawn over his eyes, when the hangman handed him a handkerchief. He was told to drop that handkerchief when he was ready. And to that instruction, John replied, John Brown is always ready. Virginia drops the handkerchief. The sheriff cut the rope with a single blow. The platform fell, and John
1: dropped through. It was reported many Southerners rejoiced at the news of his execution. One Virginian, it's recorded, yelled out, quote, So perish all such enemies of Virginia, all such enemies of the Union, all such foes of the human race. Across the northern states, church bells tolled. Although many had been initially shocked by his actions, many Northerners spoke favorably of John with statements such as, quote, He did not recognize unjust human laws, but resisted them as he was bid. In an address to the citizens of Concord, Massachusetts, said Henry David Thoreau, No man in America has ever stood up so persistently and effectively for the dignity of human nature. He continued, This morning, Captain Brown was hung. He is not old Brown any longer. He is an angel of light. As they marched into battle
3: during the American Civil War, Union soldiers sang a patriotic song called John Brown's Body. That's a song that would later become the tune for the Battle Hymn of the Republic. That song is known a little bit better outside of the United States as Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory. John Brown's raid may have failed, but six years after his death, his dream was realized when the institution of enslavement was abolished in the United States.
1: What an incredible life.
3: Wow. I can't imagine having uh, the level of bravery that man had. Uh,
1: the drive, the bravery, the constitution. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. What do you have for us now that we have lived John's life through John's eyes? (laughs) Did you
3: know, Maria, that during the Civil War, there was a a story that went around amongst the Confederate soldiers that the Union soldiers, uh, because they had access to whiskey, were braver (laughs) because they... (laughs) They had like that little bit of liquid courage. Right, right. And that that was really what made them so formidable in, in some cases. I
1: had not heard that.
3: So I wanted to do a whiskey drink. This also would have been a popular drink at this time anyway. Right. But I also wanted to make a whiskey drink that was a little comforting and delicious. Please. And I have to give credit where credit is due, because this is inspired by a drink that was made for me in a bar in Orlando by a longtime veteran of the hospitality industry. So, Lewis, I owe you for this one. (laughs) Um, But he, one night when I was drinking in the bar that he manages, we were talking about spirits, and I was saying, like, that I struggle with whiskey, but I want to make better friends with brown spirits. And he Mm -hmm. said, if I make something, will you try it? And I was like, sure. And he brought me one of the most delicious and beautiful things I've ever had in my life and was full of bourbon and got me very drunk. Don't be like me, kids. Be responsible. But I thought I could borrow a little from it. Mine is not, I will tell you, quite as magical and delicious as Lewis's because, again, he is a veteran and did not... He told me what he put in it, but I'm sure there are some secrets as well.
1: The one key ingredient you'll never know. Yes, 100%. (laughs) So
3: this one, though, is easy in terms of measures because it's equal parts of three things. And you're going to start with an ounce and a half of espresso, ideally. If you don't have access to espresso at home, just make very strong coffee for this one. I know it's not the same for the coffee purists, but it'll do for this cocktail. The next thing you're going to do is an ounce and a half of chocolate milk. (laughs) Now, you can use pre-made chocolate milk if you like it. I like to make my own because I like oat milk for it. That's a little creamier. And for this drink, I really liked it because it is a little bit creamier. And that way you control the sweetness and whatnot and you just make chocolate milk the way you like it. You just need an ounce and a half. Then you are going to do an ounce and a half of smoked bourbon. Just throw those three things in your cocktail shaker with ice. You will meanwhile be pre-chilling a martini glass. Shake that thing like crazy, strain it into the martini glass, and then you're just going to sprinkle a very light dusting of cocoa powder and
1: cinnamon on top. Cinnamon. What a great little sprinkle. And if you're
3: not a cinnamon person, because not everybody is, you can leave that out and just do the cocoa powder. I actually would love to try doing this with coconut sugar. I think that'd be super interesting, but I did not have any on hand to try it with. This is like such a great drink because it's cold. So it's great for the late summer into just about autumn as we're getting to, but it does have some of those autumnal flavors. So it's a good seasonal transition drink. Uh, and also is a good way to apparently get some fake courage if you need it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. But it is, it's very tasty and I love it. You can throttle the smoked bourbon back if you want to taste less of the alcoholic. Like if you drop it to one ounce, obviously it's not going to be as hearty a drink <laughs> in terms of alcohol, but it will still be delicious. A little
1: less courage.
3: A little less courage, <laughs> just a hair less, but that's fine. Sometimes it's wiser to... Right? M- to meet out your courage in careful measures. (laughs) For the mocktail on this, it's very easy. You're just gonna tweak your chocolate milk and espresso combo a little bit. And I would do probably not quite a two to one. Like I wouldn't sub out all of the bourbon with espresso. But I would say you could probably go up to like two or two and a half ounces of espresso to one and a half ounces of chocolate milk. And again, play with those to what you like the most. That's just what I would do to try to keep a similar balance. But, and then sprinkle those yummy things on top. Keep it nice and cold. It's beautiful. It's a nice drink because when you shake it, when you give it a really good hearty shake with ice, it just comes out with a little bit of nice white frothy bubbling on top. And it just looks very pretty. It's a good one. Yeah, it's a yummy. No, no, again, not as good as Lewis's. Nothing. More <laughs> inspired by it inspired by but i am calling that the zealot because that seemed like the best name
1: great name for to
3: reference john brown and also my fondness for this drink (laughs) (laughs) two in one two in one so hopefully if you give it a try it delights your palate we also hope that you will come back and hang with us again next week where we will once again be here to tell stories and mix a beverage or two Criminalia is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
4: I'm Katja Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico.
0: Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
3: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry.